when it comes to concurrency, you don't have separate CPUs cores. So you have a single thread and you just switch quickly. You quickly switch between the different tasks so that they feel concurrent. Hello and welcome to PodRocket. I'm Noel and joining me today is Mateus Albuquerque. Mateus is a senior front-end engineer at Medallia, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, and a mentor at Tech Labs. Uh, and he's here today to give us a deep dive on Concurrent React, which is a talk he gave recently at the React Advanced Conference. Did I get all that right? Yep. Hello. Perfect. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Um, where where was that Where was that React Advanced Conference at? First, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I personally like like the podcast. I've been following you guys. So yeah, it was in London. It was uh, yeah, the end of October in London. Nice, nice, cool. I, I I listened to most of that. I didn't make it all the way to the end of your end of your talk. So hopefully, we can kind of delve in and and bring it to the listeners in some form here. Um, but before we get into it, can you give us a little bit? Um, of your background in web dev and, and how you found yourself in the in the position you're in today. Sure. So basically, I started with web development back in 2013, 14. Like, uh, I was mostly into what was Angular 1.2 and Ionic back then. And I did I did play a lot with other stuff like uh, jQuery was a still thing, PHP. So I did experiment a lot with back then. And then, for random reasons, I switched to iOS, and I spent two years as a native iOS developer playing with Swift, Objective-C, and a bunch of Apple stuff. And then I kind of realized uh, that was not too much my thing, and I switched back to front-end again. And then I, I was doing a lot of React and stuff, and I kind of decided to focus in React back then, and I just kept diving more and more into the whole ecosystem and, and stuff. And, across different companies of different scales. Would you say you are, uh, I don't know, you're more close to the internals of React day-to-day than a lot of other web developers are, even if they're React users? So um, to be honest, uh, it's not part of my day-to-day job. So basically at Medallia, I do work with performance optimization and stuff. So sometimes knowing how React works and stuff is it's useful. But my my story with the internals of React traces back to it was about 2018 when hooks and suspense and etc. they became a thing. I had a close friend of mine that he basically predicted suspense a couple months before it was released. And then uh, I remember seeing like that one session where they announced suspense, and I was like, "Hey, my friend showed me that like the beginning of the year," and I. I went up to him like, hey, how did you know about it? And he was like, yeah, I was following the pull request and stuff. And it just felt it was going to happen anytime. So back then, I was really motivated. Okay, maybe diving, digging a bit into the source and trying to figure out things might help me predict a bit of what's going to happen and understand what's happening now. Yeah, so let's, let's dig into the, into the topic of the talk a little bit. What is Concurrent React, in your words, um, and maybe at a high level, what do developers need to know about it to you know, make their web apps as optimal as possible? So I would say that Concurrent React nowadays, uh, it's, it's more of an umbrella of different patterns and different features. And uh, like years ago, when this whole topic started, it, it was sold as one thing, but 
it's like you enabled Confident Mode and that was Confident React and etc. But nowadays, and mostly with React 18, it's more like a set of features that you can opt in and patterns like you can follow, like uh, splitting high and low priority updates, deferring values, that kind of stuff. So it's an umbrella of patterns, umbrella of APIs, and it's also an implementation detail of how those things work under the hood to basically allow React to render multiple versions of UI at the same time. Gotcha, gotcha. So maybe, maybe like, I don't know, to kind of start at the beginning and, and paint this so we can reach as, as broad a listener base as possible. Can we start a little bit by talking about kind of kind of the, the, the default way of doing things in JavaScript, uh, like blocking on the main thread, how that can be a problem, some real life examples of that, um, and then we can kind of tie that into React as we go. Cool, cool. So basically, uh, coming to the main thread, uh, it's basically where most of the tasks run into the browser. So it's where nearly all the JavaScript we have that we write works and etc. And the tricky thing is that it can only process one thing at a time. So this kind of becomes a problem when we have, and that's one of the things I kind of start by approaching those in my session is when we get to have long tasks. So basically, uh, those long tasks are things that when something takes more than 50 milliseconds, it's a long task. And that's, that's bad because we have only one thread. So if that one thread that is responsible for rendering the UI, it's blocked, then the whole UI is blocked and we can get to really bad uh, states in our apps. Is there ways that we can avoid doing that in, in I guess, particularly in terms of working in like UI frameworks, you know, React in particular? Yeah, sure. So basically we have different approaches because to think of how, how to not to block the main thread, we have to think about how to run our tasks, especially the long tasks. For all uh, the history, we've seen different ways of doing that and different approaches. We have for example, the ones we touch more in the session are parallelism and concurrency. So especially because talking, for, for discussing concurrency, you kind of have to discuss the other side that was parallelism and see what are the drawbacks and stuff. So basically the ways we have to avoid blocking the main thread is going either with parallelism or concurrency or scheduling that is concurrency plus uh, a scheduler kind of be tricky to get into, but let's talk about parallelism and parallelism and concurrency first. Um, what are the ways that workers play into concurrency in today? Like, you know, if, if somebody's kind of getting into workers, starting to offload some basic functionality to them, how does that kind of play into this topic? Cool. So workers are basically our alternative for parallelism in the browser. So they're our, the way we have for doing different threads in front end. And basically a worker is an isolated JavaScript uh, scope running on a separate thread. And basically they have a few special requirements or workers behave in a particular way. So the first thing is that they can only do message passing. So you, you don't share uh, variables, you don't share code with workers, they can send and react to messages that they get. That's one thing. The other thing is that they don't have access to, to the DON. So that's kind of, uh, to most of the DON APIs actually. 
So that can be uh, another limiting thing. On the other hand, though, they are they're really good because um, if you have a long task that you can manage to offload that to a worker, for example, some uh, huge math or some heavy computation, some, something that's CPU bound and you can offload that, then, then that's good. So it's usually balancing the, the overhead of moving code to worker where you get to have, for example, these issues I mentioned versus what you're gaining by offloading the main thread. So that I guess that to sum up, that's the role that workers play there, the parallelism alternative in the browser. And usually when you're dealing with workers, you end up abstracting things, abstracting your code and your solutions in two ways, either following what's known as actor model or working with shared memory. Can you talk a little bit more about shared memory? I feel like a lot of devs may not have delved into that much. Like maybe they may have done some basic workers that are doing, you know, more trivial message passing, but nothing, nothing in the shared memory space. How does, how does that work? Yeah, I guess that because of the message passing nature of workers, we tend to have this actor thing more clear and et cetera. So I kind of agree what you said about shared memory and, there's another thing that counts for that. Basically, the, the web was not built, and I mean, the browsers, they were not built uh, around the idea of having concurrent access to objects, to variables, or that kind of thing. So that's why we don't have a lot of APIs for that in the browser. So you asked about shared memory. So that's basically one of the traditional approaches we have for concurrency, for accessing things uh, in a concurrent way. And it does have an advantage that is it cuts off the overhead that you would have with message passing. Because message passing, especially in workers, it works via structured cloning. So you're basically making copies of things and etc. And this does have an overhead. So with shared memory, you get rid of that, which is good. But the point is, because the web was not uh, built around this, Usually, you end up having to build, if you're doing that in the browsers with web workers and stuff, you end up having to build your own data structures for enabling that, like mutexes. And you know those things we, we see in CS and ways of doing countries. Yeah, so this is uh, getting better and better over time. I would say we have the shared array buffer in the browser that is one data type. And now we also have atomics. But still, in the end, with shared array buffers, we don't have traditional objects, uh, traditional arrays from JavaScript. So we're just handling bytes. So this would be what I, I kind of consider this complicated and it does have a learning curve, I would say. Yeah, doing, doing kind of byte-based memory management doesn't feel very JavaScript-y, for lack of a better term, right? I feel like those that spend most of their time in the JavaScript world, me included, we're kind of used to a lot of the niceties that JavaScript bring us. Got to go dust off the computer science fundamentals books when we're like having to do byte level memory manipulation and stuff. Are there any any good use cases you've encountered for these workers with shared memory that are kind of more concise examples that may be like if, if if someone's in that realm like uh this that may be a good avenue for them to explore yeah sure so actually if you're going either with shared memory or with the actor model to be honest uh, it it's more specific to your code base and what you, with your demand 
But for workers and pluralism in general, throughout history, I, I've seen some uh, examples in some projects I worked on. For example, it was about five or actually six or seven years ago, I was working on this React app and it uh, had a, the key of the app was to render a map and it was a traditional Mac box map. And the tricky thing about it is that we had 100,000 data points plotted on that map. So it was like, imagine the whole map of the US with a bunch of ads that's played, plotted there and sometimes clusterized and etc. And uh, we had to do a lot of operations on the front end on top of those. So basically we used the workers and uh, we used a bunch of different stuff, including workers and protocol buffers to optimize the way they were downloaded. We also used some Redux Saga utilities on the front end. Back then we were using Redux and Redux Saga. So this was one example. Another example is it's not workers, but it's uh, WebAssembly because people usually, they like to see uh, both uh, workers and WebAssembly. So about three years ago, I uh, was working on the side project with a friend of mine and it was just for fun. We basically, there's this Game Boy Advance game, it's called Klonoa. It's not one of the most popular ones in Game Boy, but basically he really liked that game. I, I didn't know the game. And he came up with this crazy project idea of building a level editor for that game in React. And um, he was really focused in reverse engineering back then. So I left all the reverse engineering fun for him, <laughs> especially because I didn't know a lot of it. And Basically, uh, the web assembly used over there was um, the algorithm for decompressing the game run was written in C. And it was completely out of consideration for us to rewrite that. First, because we didn't know. And second, because it would be really inefficient to rewrite that in C. So uh, back then, we ended up having uh, the C code targeted to WebAssembly and running in a separate thread with a worker to basically decompress the game wrong so that we could render the tile maps of the game on this React app. So again, this, uh, this was another example, but yeah, it's usually when you, I would say the general thing is when you have to do like crunch numbers, huge data processing and you do measure and you see that the overheads of workers are the trade-off is a good thing, then workers might be an answer. I think that's a, that's a good example, I guess. Thank you, for, thank you for bringing that in. Are there particular cases where WebAssembly in particular may be a good, or a good, a good fit for front-end devs? And I guess kind of more broadly, how does that, how does that fit into the, into the React ecosystem? Like I, in, in my head, React is so is so far removed from like the kind of work you'd be handling off, handing off to a worker or having WebAssembly do for us that they're, they're kind of different realms, but that interface layer, the way in which they communicate, I think is the, is the tricky part. So is, is there, are there particular difficulties there? Or I guess, is that, is that kind of the subject of most of your talk is trying to help developers figure out how to bridge those two things? It's usually those comes from some problems. So I, I, another really uh, interesting case for workers. And so, you know, Jason Miller, uh, the guy behind Preact, it was about six or seven years ago. He came up with, uh, I don't recall the name of the library, but uh, back then it was a library that was basically offloading reducers 
two worker friends. And uh, this was one of the ideas that when I first saw that, uh, I didn't quite like this. I was like, why would I want to offload a reducer to the main thread? But then again, five, six years ago, I got to a project that uh, basically it was a huge piece of legacy code. And we have our reducers really, we had a lot of data processing happening on the reducers. And it wasn't supposed to be there, but because it was a huge legacy code, just we couldn't just get rid of it and start from scratch. So we had to do something to optimize that. And it turned out that, for example, offloading those heavy CPU-bound reducers to worker threads was basically uh, one thing that worked for us. So I guess that uh, it's kind of like when you see the opportunity and you do a little bit of discovery and you see if that's a fit or not. And the second thing you mentioned, like uh, bridging those, I still kind of feel, especially when it comes to Wasm, that for a lot of us, React and WebAssembly are just two completely different realms that we that don't usually talk to each other. To be honest, from my own experience, that one I mentioned, the side project uh, rendering the game was one of the few cases I have had, but... I've seen a lot of experimentation out there, and I'm I'm really interested in see what's coming out of it. For example, I saw a couple of folks. I think it was last year. They were basically porting Reconciler, uh, the reconciliation algorithm from React, into Rust and targeting that into WebAssembly. Because you know nowadays everyone is rewriting front-end stuff in Rust, so <laughs> why not? And uh, that was one of uh, that was a really really interesting case, to be honest. But I guess that because we still are missing a lot of things in, in WebAssembly, for example, we still don't have proper garbage collection. I mean, there are plans to bring it, but we still don't have it. We still don't have ES modules, interpretation, error handling, and a couple of different things. And because of a lot of things in WebAssembly are still promises, that's why I think that when it comes to WASM, it feels like those are different realms because we still need few things to happen in WASM before we can see more of those combined together. And uh, that's why, for example, nowadays uh, you will see a lot of benchmarks basically proving that when you have to interoperate a lot with JavaScript, like, for example, when you have to do a lot of DOM, WebAssembly becomes really, really slow. And sometimes it's even slower than libraries like React as well, or those or or those with a high level of abstraction. So I, I, I guess that's another example. And last but not least, the fact that, I mean, it's not like uh, most of front-enders are used to doing Rust or C++ or those languages that are compiled to often. There's a lot of optimization work that one needs to kind of manually do, right? Like the lower the lower level code you start writing. Whereas if you, you can lean on React more, you can kind of like assume it's going to do the right things. There's people have spent a lot of time thinking about making sure stuff's happening in as optimal way as possible. As possible. So I think that that is, is intuitive to some degree, but yeah, it may not be what most people arrive at right away. Um, but I think that that is a good segue into like, some of the optimization work that React is doing, or maybe just optimization works too broad a term, but like the work React is doing to ensure that rendering happens as efficiently as possible. Um, and I think that's kind of more in the realm of schedulers, maybe the area that we haven't 
talked about as much here. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Basically, what we did so far was teaching the first part of the talk that is basically, uh, okay, this is parallelism, this is when parallelism is good, this is when parallelism is bad, those are the drawbacks. So now uh, we can kind of look, okay, now that we know parallelism, what is concurrency all about? Because when it comes to concurrency, you don't have separate CPU cores. So you have a single thread and you just switch quickly. You quickly switch between the different tasks so that, that they feel concurrent. And scheduling itself is basically concurrency, but you add a piece of software called the scheduler that is responsible for assigning different priorities for different tasks. So that's that's kind of the role that uh, this internal scheduler package plays in, in React. And uh, for me, uh, most of uh, Confront React is pretty much uh, and that's one of the things I, I kind of joke. If I had to summarize with only one word, that would be pretty much scheduling for Confront React. Got it. Got it. So, so for you know, for a front end dev who hasn't kind of considered this at all, or you had gone, you know, down down into the internals of React and kind of explored there and figured out what's going on, um, can we talk a little bit about what the like? what React's concerns are in regard to concurrency, like what the priorities are, how it decides when to render what, um, and just kind of talk through that a little bit. That's one thing I managed to, by the way, discuss uh, with Dan, uh, Dan Abramov after my session because I, I, I jumped straight in like, to ask feedback. Because in the session, I do touch some of the internals, like priority levels, render lanes, and some really interesting abstractions. But one of the amazing things, in my opinion, that the React does, uh, React team do, is, is to basically abstract you, a developer, away from those complex yet very interesting concepts that are lying underneath React and to give you just simple and powerful APIs. So basically, he was like, oh, we try our best not to have developers having to learn all of these things. And then suddenly you're here showing some of the internals and they sound a bit complicated and et cetera. So he basically said, uh, there should be a warning in the beginning of the session, like, hey, that's kind of a heads up that he also writes in some of his blog posts. Uh, you don't need this to write React, but if you want to check this out, that's interesting. <laughs> so basically you mentioned priorities and stuff. So React does have a really, really interesting uh, abstractions uh, internally. Uh, first of them, I, I would say, is the heuristics it has for deciding when to use execution back to the main thread. And basically, uh, it was one of the things that most caught my attention when I was uh, going through the source, is that they have an interval of five milliseconds. And when I first saw that, I was like, mm, that sounds like a magic number, like... A, where is this coming from? And basically, it's one way that they have for ensuring that things are, animations aren't blocked even on 120 FPS devices. So that's one of the interesting things. Another interesting thing are different priority levels. So React internally has like six, I guess six, yes, levels uh, ranging from, for example, this should run immediately to this can run whenever we have some spare power, that kind of stuff, and those have different timeouts and things. And understanding those internals, to be honest, I think it's really interesting. And I, I do spend some of uh, my slides going through that. But what's 
even more interesting is the next section because then I was like, okay, uh, we saw those different levels of priorities. Um, we saw render length or a bit of a complicated concept that they have internally, but what can we do? I mean, we're not building schedulers. Like I myself, I don't work on a daily basis, like interacting with those concepts. And most of us front-end engineers, we don't either. So how can we benefit from that? And that's that's when uh, I start exploring some other use cases, like the results of those internal abstractions. Yeah, yeah. So let's 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 focus our time there, because yeah, I think I think you're right that it's it's good to know that there is a underlying priority level based scheduling system going on. But yeah, like you said, maybe less impactful day to day to an engineer who's like writing this code. So what? What are we doing in React typically, like, you know, in a, in a Hello World app with like maybe an, a couple input boxes and like a submit button to a server that gives us feedback in a, in a very basic flow? How, how are those priority levels like playing into that? And what what might devs be doing that like would impact those or, you know, leverage those in a, in a useful way? Yeah. So one of the first things I approach are transitions. I mean... We had something similar to transitions in previous version of React, but in the way that they are now, it came out with React 18. And basically, first example I give is we see, and I myself I saw a lot of blog posts out there and even sessions of some examples like, uh, hey, I'm running this really, really heavy algorithm uh, inside my render function, like some algorithm to crack a password or some algorithm to find prime numbers, you know, those those things that are usually used for benchmarking. but and, and those are great for benchmarking. But the point is, when us front-end engineers see those, we don't see any practical application of that because it's like, I don't have any, I'm not trying to find prime numbers inside my render of a component. So what? What? how is that useful? And we tend to forget about things that we do. Like we, it's normal that we have apps that handle a large set of data, for example. Or it's lo- it's usual that we have apps where we have to render a lot of things on the canvas element, for example, that kind of thing. Those are what I consider to be practical applications. So one of the examples I give is we have a dashboard and uh, that basically renders the, the amount of visitors a website gets every day. And you can filter that by the dates. And that's kind of a heavy operation because it's a huge set of data. And then I show how to optimize that using the use transition hook. That that's basically wrapping uh, in with a start transition thing you get from use transition. So this would be uh, one practical example. Uh, another one is when we usually discuss. Okay, hey, we have this component and it's re-rendering a lot, and it shouldn't be like that. Why is it re-rendering? So the first things we think, okay, maybe I'm passing down some props that shouldn't be there, or maybe I forgot to use Nemo or use callback or some of those memoization hooks, that kind of things. But for example, in React 18, we have a hook called use sync external store. It's a huge name, by the way. Basically, uh, this hook, when it came out, it was mostly sold as a hook for library maintainers. So we saw a lot of uh, libraries for state management using that for even Redux uh, starting on version eight, they adopted that hook. But the point is we, again, 
because those are complex cases, we kind of forget to, okay, how could I use that? And one of the examples I show is using that to kind of create your own selectors of parts of the state. And then I show one example that's basically using a React router. And then we have a component that's being re-rendered because of one of the properties changed and it wasn't supposed to be re-rendered. So how can we optimize that with using external store? So I, I guess that kind of to sum up, it's seeing what those benchmarks, what those blog posts and what those library maintainers are doing and kind of trying to fit that in what we are doing because it does apply all the same. Yeah, so I think I think in all of the examples you just brought up, they all they all concern themselves with using the right hook to extract data or to pass it around between components. Like is that is that where engineers should be focusing? Like is that is that what we should be thinking about is ensuring that we're using the correct hooks or abstractions so as to not be you know, overly syncing data or passing it around to components that don't need it passed around? Just like uh, in, the, in the very beginning, uh, we discussed what uh, Confident React was all about and was kind of an umbrella of different APIs and different patterns. I would say this could be one of the things, but it's. I think that in my opinion, for us, like on our daily jobs, it's also a lot about thinking on how we can split how in life high and low priority updates and uh, when something makes sense to be immediate and when something can be deferred, when some value can be deferred, that kind of stuff. So th that's why I think it's it's going to be more and, and more and more about scheduling, not only internally, but also for uh, we as users of, of a library think of when we want something to be run, when it makes sense, what kind of priority it makes sense to have. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I think that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess I'm, I think I think hooks are are a pretty powerful abstraction in general. So I'm I'm curious if you think that most of these scheduling concerns are typically going to be interfaced with via hooks of some kind. Would you say that that's accurate? I would say that it's coming not only hooks but in different ways. One example is the off-screen component. So it's going to be basically a declarative way for you to assign off-screen priority for a component by wrapping it with this component. So I would say that those scheduling abstractions are going to come in form of hooks, but also in form of components. And even they're coming to the web itself. So nowadays, not only nowadays, but in the past couple of years, there is one of my favorite proposals for the web is the scheduling API. And this one is kind of an umbrella for a lot of different APIs. And basically, this is going to be a unified way integrated into the event loop of JavaScript and et cetera to allow those developers to yield execution, to delay execution, to play with different priorities, to abort tasks. Because the thing is, if the web, for example, had a scheduler itself, if the browsers had it, probably React wouldn't have to do a lot of powerful engineering work under the hood to have its own scheduler. And another thing is, if we don't have, like if React has its own scheduler, then let's say Solid has its own scheduler, then different frameworks, they have their own schedulers each, then we would probably have resource fighting and et cetera. So overall, I would say that the web is kind of lacking uh, unified scheduling primitives 
and we have like this, a bunch of proposals covering different aspects of it of there and we even have people using it in production already so it's going to come in form of hooks in components but also as part of the web standards cool yeah yeah so you mentioned you mentioned yeah like the uh, some declarative stuff like the the off screen components tag and yeah like the this 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 scheduling api so is 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 kind of the is is what you're compelling people writing front end software to do is just kind of like be aware of these things and go seek them out is there any particular channels you'd implore them to keep an eye on or you know like be be listening to definitely one of the things that i think it's amazing one of the most incredible education uh, efforts from react in my opinion is now that they have the open discussions repo. So you can, that's a great, great source for you to find out about how React is doing scheduling and not only scheduling, but anything, all of those more advanced topics like hydration, server components, all everything that we hear a lot everywhere these days. You see a lot of those discussions happening over there. And that's amazing because in the past, uh, you would have to, for example, try to dig that in pull requests or open issues, follow different discussions across different repos. So I think that nowadays this kind of uh, information, it, it, the access to it is way more democratic and I like that. And another thing is keep an eye on uh, the proposals of the web. Like for example, the scheduling APIs, like keep an eye on what's happening to ECMAScript, what's happening to the browsers, what kind of APIs they're, they're trying to bring. And keep an eye on the engineering blocks of people experimenting with that. So Facebook has blog posts of how they are using this scheduling API for the web. Airbnb also have really interesting cases about that. So yeah, yeah, I I, I really see that uh, we have a good momentum here because uh, this this kind of information is way more spread out. Yeah, I think I think that there there is. There's a lot out there. It can be it can be overwhelming, but yeah, like I, I I think it's always good to have a few a few resources to point devs to. I guess I think we're we're kind of closing the loop here pretty well. Is there anything else you want to implore developers to check out, or any anything else in this kind of more broad concurrency discussion that you think is worth mentioning? One thing that and that that's kind of a feedback I've been getting recently. Now that I'm talking a lot more about internals of React and etc., those usually kind of make feel people feel a little bit of the JavaScript fatigue because they're like, oh, that's a lot of things about the parallelization, concurrency. I, I wasn't even aware we have those internals in the browser or those internals in React. So I would say that uh, the most important thing here is first not to freak out because you're not familiar with one or another of those concepts. Because actually, you can write really, really good front-end code without ever touching these. So that's the, I guess that's the first piece of advice. And the second one is, I think that once you, okay, you can write amazing code, build amazing apps without these. But if you're willing to explore these, it's just like you're gaining extra powers. First, because it's kind of a way for you to see uh, what's coming down the line for React and for the web, and you can kind of prepare for that. So if you're, even if you're at your company and you have some library, some internal SDK, some kind of stuff, you can start preparing you for what's coming uh, for the future. That That's one thing. And sometimes understanding those internals also helps us 
come up with our own abstractions in our daily basis. And that's amazing. And uh, for example, Google Maps, they do have, or at least they used to, they did have their own scheduler. So it was not React, it was not a framework. It was just a scheduler built for the, the Google Apps app itself. And so that's one example. And uh, on my session, I also try to provide other examples where understanding those internals might help you come up with your own abstractions and that, that, that would be helpful. But I would say it's just don't, anyone shouldn't feel the fatigue of not being familiarized with those and uh, they're not essential. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get links in the show notes to your talk uh, and, and some of the resources, the blogs that you mentioned, uh, like Facebook and Airbnb engineering blogs. Um, is there anything else you want to want to point listeners to specifically, like anywhere they can kind of keep track of what you're working on or, or places you'd encourage them to, to check out? Yeah, so basically anyone who's willing to explore more, you can find me everywhere as at White Combinator. So I'm White Combinator, just going to be in the description. So Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, everywhere I'm White Combinator. So I usually post all my sessions there, not only the recordings, but also the slides and some references. So I usually like talking about performance, internals of tools and etc. So for people who are willing to explore more, I'm always open to discussions and etc. And yeah, we, we do have a lot of resources online these days. So that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, we'll get we'll get links to your your relevant profiles in the show notes as well so people can find you. Cool. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming online and chatting with me, Mateus. I, I appreciate it a lot. And I think that this was a was an awesome little chat. Thanks for having me, Noel. Uh, yeah, I, I particularly love talking about those random topics. And uh, yeah, that kind of overlap CS, React, uh, other crazy front-end stuff. So yeah, for me, it's always a pleasure to be discussing those. Of course, of course. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll catch you soon. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me.